All right, so today uh, marks week five of our series that we've been in, looking at the book of Romans. Um, we're trying to complete this series in seven weeks, which is, could be a little bit foolish to try to get through the entire book of Romans in seven weeks. I told you that my friend Justin Rohr is preaching through Romans 8, just one chapter, the entire summer, and we're trying to get through the whole book in seven weeks. So um, you can probably guess that you're not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of this book, but my hope is I can help to illuminate some of the bigger picture stuff in Romans, and it'll help you to approach it with a little more confidence, um, because I think like like you all probably have similar experiences to me that maybe you have some history with Romans and maybe you haven't fully understood it or maybe even had some issues with it. And so my hope is through this series that you'll come away just feeling a little more confident um, in approaching uh, this text. And if you'd like to talk more about it um, outside of Sunday morning, I would love to do that. So uh, send me an email or a text and I'd love to get together with you and talk about Romans at any time because I've really loved what I've been learning. I want to give you all a brief recap of where we've come. We started at the end. I told you all that we're taking Scott McKnight's advice, who wrote this wonderful book called Reading Romans Backwards, and we're starting at the end, and we're moving towards the beginning. And so I'll give you a brief recap of where we've come, so you'll kind of know and be reminded of what we've been up to. So the first week, we kind of looked at the historical context. We've talked about repeatedly over and over and over again that Romans is a letter. It is not some grand theological treatise that's meant to be um, applicable 100% to all times and places. It was written by an author to actual people. And so Paul wrote Romans to people who were living in Rome, to these house churches, these Christians who were living in the capital city of the empire. And there were probably at most about 200 Christians in Rome at the time. And so this is not a large group of people. There may have been between five to eight house churches where they would gather in homes and they would read Scripture together, they would learn together, they would worship together, share food together. And, and so they were, had these house churches. They were very diverse house churches. Um, we had Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. You had wealthy people with power. You also had... Uh, people at the lowest end of the kind of social spectrum. You had slaves in the churches. You maybe had masters in the churches as well. You had people from different ethnic groups. It was a very diverse group of Christians in Rome. And because of that diversity, there were conflicts that arose. It's a lot easier to have church if everybody is the same, but that's not what Paul's mission was. Paul's mission was to establish diverse churches, these churches where walls were torn down, hierarchies were broken down, and everybody came together as siblings in Christ. In week two, we focused our, uh, our attention on chapter 16. If you have read Romans 16, you'll see there's like a lot of names. There's a lot of greetings that Paul gives at the end. And we focused in on some of those names, spending most of our time looking at a woman named Phoebe. And Phoebe from, uh, it, it seems pretty likely that Phoebe would have been the person who delivered the letter to the churches in Rome. She likely would have been the reader or performer of the letter to the house churches in Rome. And she was likely the first interpreter of Romans as well, because as she's reading it, there would likely be questions that people would ask. And we talked about how Paul really relied on this wide network of people. Um, to, to accomplish this mission that God had given him. And women, in particular, were leaders in the early church, and Phoebe is a wonderful example. In week three, uh, we talked about the weak and the strong, these two groups that Paul refers to throughout the letter, and he actually refers to the weak and strong in another letter he wrote to some other folks. 
Um, and we determine that we believe that Paul is referring to Jewish and Gentile Christians. These are the two groups he's referring to. The Jewish Christians would have been the weak, and the Gentile Christians, by and large, would have been the strong. And he really encourages them that they need to stop judging each other so much and accept each other despite the differences that they share with one another. And that felt very relevant to me and to some of you all as well in this moment in history where we couldn't be much more divided as a country, right? Right now, and Paul, I think, has a word for us as Christians that we got to be different. We've got to figure out how to work through differences and respect one another and cling to one another in spite of those differences. And so in week four, which was last week, uh, I taught you this word that Scott McKnight came up with called Christoformity. It's a made-up word. Christians like to make up words like this sometimes. Um, but it's a, it's a good one. Because what it essentially means is that we become formed and shaped to look like Jesus. Through the power of the Spirit working within us, we are formed and shaped to look more and more like Jesus. And ultimately, like chapter 12, really encapsulates what that looks like. And I I would agree with Scott McKnight that this is really the goal of what Paul is up to in Romans. That he wants these Christians in Rome to be formed and shaped to look like Jesus. And so my hope for us as a church is that we continue to be formed and shaped to look like Jesus. So now that we've covered the last section of Romans 12 through 16, um, we're actually going to break the rule a little bit, and we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, to chapter 1. All right, so we did the last section, but now we're going to go back to chapter 1 and get through this first section of Romans. And so I'm going to read it for you. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I'm going to read 17 verses. It's a little bit long, but I want you all to hear this. This is kind of the whole introduction to Romans that that Paul wrote. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated or indebted both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I'd like to focus our attention on verse 16 this morning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So that first line reads, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now as I've reflected on this verse, I've had the thought, why is Paul saying to us that he's not ashamed of the gospel? My question then is, well, if Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, are there people who are ashamed of the gospel? And are there reasons that someone might be ashamed of the gospel? I don't think Paul would have specifically said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, unless there were actually folks out there who were, in fact, ashamed of the gospel. Or perhaps Paul knew that there was something about the gospel that was hard to accept or to embrace fully. And Paul perceived that that might be a problem. He's boldly declaring, I'm not, in fact, ashamed of this gospel of Jesus. You know, I remember hearing this verse when I was in high school. And I remember being challenged by our youth leaders to kind of stand up proudly for Jesus, you know. And and so I was challenged to talk about Jesus openly at school, um, not be ashamed to kind of get out there and tell people about my faith and broadcast out to the secular world that I am a Christian and I'm not ashamed of it, right? I don't know if y'all have ever felt that pressure, you know, when you were growing up. Um, A few years before that, I remember there was a big craze of like people wearing Christian t-shirts. I didn't really get into them too much. I think my brother had a couple of them, uh, but a lot of people wore Christian t-shirts and one in particular, and I believe my brother had this one, It's quite an embarrassing shirt if you ask me, but it had an image of Jesus, and I'll show you a photo, doing push-ups with a cross on his back, and Jesus is ripped, you know, he's just like, he's swole, he's pushing up with that cross, and it says the Lord's gym at the top, and then on the back, the back is kind of the worst, his pain, your gain, you know. Um, I found one recently that I actually like a little better, it says Jesus, the ultimate deadlifter, That one's great. I might actually wear that one. To not be ashamed of the gospel meant that you would loudly tell everybody that you were a Christian. And and Christian music was like hitting a high point at that that time. You know, Jesus, or DC Talk came out with that album, Jesus Freaks, you know. They're like, what will people say if they hear I'm a Jesus freak? I don't even care, you know, if they label me a Jesus freak. And, uh, and there's no disguise in the truth, they said. And wonderful song, and iconic album, by the way. Laban, we got to do some Jesus Freak in church on a Sunday. Um, but it was this idea, and it was part of that Christian culture that, that, you know, through your music, through your T-shirts, through getting out there, at, see you at the pole rallies at school, and all these things, you would get out there, and you would tell everybody, through your evangelism, everything, I'm a Christian, and I'm not ashamed to talk about it. And the reality is, though, as I've thought about it, a lot of that didn't have a whole lot to do with the actual gospel. It was more about identity, right? It was about not being ashamed 
to be called a Christian and be part of that Christian crowd or that Christian group. You know, today we live in a a different culture than we lived back in the 90s in many ways. And many people today are actually, in fact, ashamed to be identified as a Christian. Some of you maybe feel that inside. A lot of it is for good reason, I think, because Christians continue to do pretty horrendous and awful things. And a lot of that just continues to be brought more into the light. And a lot of the way we are just so connected to one another, a lot of that stuff is just so prevalent. I've watched a lot of documentaries lately about Christians doing terrible things. Um, I don't know if y'all have seen some of the popular ones that are out there right now. Um, They're very fascinating. This is like what I grew up with. And so I listen to podcasts about this stuff. Um, It's all over the place. And and a lot of these documentaries are exposing kind of that, that fakeness and that corruption that often runs in Christian circles. Sometimes I'm even reluctant to tell people I'm a pastor when they ask what I do. It's, it's sometimes the most weird interactions I have with people. And they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes it shuts down conversation and they just move on. Sometimes it invites conversation. Uh, but sometimes I don't even like that, con- that awkwardness, you know, because I'm worried about that response I'm going to get. This is different, though, I think, to what Paul is talking about. This is more about being ashamed of being part of that Christian crowd, not so much about being ashamed of being a follower of Jesus. I think Paul was communicating he wasn't ashamed of being identified with Jesus. Paul might have actually felt some shame or felt be, be a bit of shame of being associated with some of the Christians in Rome who were fighting with each other and judging one another all the time. He makes it clear he didn't like that very much. But Paul is saying he wasn't ashamed of Jesus. This Jesus who turned the world upside down through his radical mission, through his death, through his resurrection, through the power of his spirit moving throughout this world. Paul understood that the gospel, he talks about it being the power of God. The Greek for power is a word dynamis. And dynamis reminds me of the word dynamite, right? That the gospel is the dynamite of God, that it has blown up our notions of what is right and wrong, what is honorable or shameful, and truly the gospel has turned the world upside down. People usually don't like when things are turned upside down, and there's something about the gospel that is hard and has been hard for people to accept and embrace. So I want to go back to the beginning of Christianity in Rome, these people Paul was writing to Why would someone in Rome be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus? Well, I can think of a few reasons that that are possible that help us understand more of the context of what was happening. So I'm going to break a few of these down for us, and then we'll hopefully make some connections to ourselves today. From the beginning of the letter, Paul clearly argues that the gospel or the Christian faith as we talk about it, it originated with the Jewish people. Now, Paul was likely writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but there were a lot of Gentile Christians in Rome. If you remember, the Jews were expelled from Rome at one point. And so Paul is writing to Gentiles, and he's telling them about this gospel that originated with the Jewish people. It is for everyone, but Paul is saying it was for the Jew first. 
Now, I imagine for some Romans, it would be hard to accept that the Jews actually received this first, and they were taking kind of second place in a way to the Jews. This might be hard for them to accept because the Jews, in many ways, in that early first century, they were viewed with suspicion. They were ridiculed. They were oppressed. They were often mocked. You may remember, like I said, that Emperor Claudius actually expelled the Jews from Rome at one point, and, and he kicked them out of the city because they were so disliked. The Jews were also conquered many times over throughout their history, and they lived under the rule of the Roman Empire, who valued this military might and power. And so Paul, when Paul says the gospel was for the Jew first, this might not sit well with all the Romans, or maybe even other ethnic groups in Rome. They may prefer that the gospel came to them first, not to the Jewish people whom many of them despised. Right at the beginning of his letter, Paul also declares that Jesus is Lord. Now, you may have heard this before because it's received more attention in in the more recent years, but the word Lord was actually a politically charged term. Now, we read the Bible today, and we don't pick up on a lot of the political language that's in these letters, but there's a lot of it. Words like salvation and grace and a lot of this were very politically charged terms in the Roman world. And Lord was one of the greatest. It was used for the emperor. To declare Jesus was Lord was a very subversive thing for Paul to do. The Romans were expected to worship the emperor and declare their complete allegiance to the emperor as Lord. And also worship the emperor's gods. For Paul, the gospel says that Jesus is Lord, which in fact means that Caesar is not Lord. And so imagine Romans who are living in the capital city of the empire. They grew up on all the stories of the Roman gods. They grew up with the shrines. They grew up hearing that the emperor was Lord and worshiping the emperor alongside their families. They may have a hard time accepting that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Another reason a Roman could be ashamed of the gospel, let's go a little bit further with our focus on Jesus. The gospel says that Jesus, the leader of this movement, the Lord, the Messiah, was executed by way of crucifixion, which was the most shameful and humiliating way to die. Jesus was literally shamed to the point of death on the cross. In Rome, the place of military might and power, Paul was arguing that we should give our allegiance to a poor Jewish man who was crucified. You can see how someone might be ashamed to follow this Jesus. Another reason, in the first verse of Romans, Paul introduces himself as a slave. This is a pretty radical thing for Paul to do, and I It may have received mixed results for Paul to identify himself this way. I do wonder what a slave might think of Paul, a Roman citizen, taking on that identity. They may like it, and they may also feel like, what does he know what it's like to be a slave? This was very radical and very subversive that Paul would use this language. In the NIV, it's translated servant, but it also, in many places, is translated as slave. Paul was a Roman citizen, had this status and honor in the Roman Empire, yet chose to identify 
with those at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. I imagine some Christians heard, who heard this letter might have been offended that the great Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, identified with the least. Paul goes on to say that he is in debt to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. We've talked about this society of honor and shame and debt, and, and, and you had patrons, and there was this society when everybody was kind of in debt to somebody. And Paul comes out and says, I am a slave of Christ, and I am indebted to everyone. I mean, this would be a very radical thing for someone like Paul to say. One of the leaders of this movement dedicated to this gospel called himself a slave and said he was in debt to everybody? Does that sound like a leader that we want to follow? What is this gospel that would lead someone to take on that identity? These are just a few reasons why someone could be ashamed of the gospel in first century Rome. Yet Paul was not ashamed. Paul had the audacity to take the gospel of Jesus to the heart of the empire, the capital city of Rome. The place where they believed salvation for the world flowed. I mean, Rome was where it all happened. The peace of Rome would flow out to the world from the center of the empire. And Paul said, no, this is where I want to take the gospel of Jesus that turns all this upside down. Paul said that he desired to go to Rome in the letter. And Paul eventually did make it to Rome, but not on his own volition. He was actually arrested and detained and was taken to Rome to face trial. He ended up there because of that unwavering commitment to the gospel, and it got him arrested. And he faced this because of this commitment. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. You know, we're talking a lot about shame and honor, and this is what they were talking about back in first century, uh, the ancient Near East. You know, all societies, though, have categories of honor and shame. In America, we have certain kind of individuals or certain types of people and achievements and ways of existing in this world that we say are honorable or right or good or worthy. When I was in college, I've talked about my experience in college quite a bit because I went to a Christian school, and going to a Christian school is always interesting. You know, it's just a, a wild time. And my school in particular uh, was very interesting. Um, at my Christian school, I attended a few commencement ceremonies and, you know, graduations. And I, I started paying attention to who was invited to speak at our commencement ceremonies. And what I noticed is that almost every speaker that was ever invited to speak, they all shared very similar characteristics. They were all extremely wealthy. I'm talking extremely wealthy. We had like the owner of the Orlando Magic come and speak at our commencement. You know, the only qualifying thing he had was he, he had a lot of money, basically. They were all extremely wealthy. They were all American. They were all male. And they were all white. If you look around the school, almost all the buildings in our university, they had names on them, right? Because that's how you get those paid for. You find people who like to stamp their names on things. They give money. They put it on there. And then you get to build your building. Almost all the buildings were named after people that shared those exact same characteristics. Now, I started to imagine, if you think about someone planning a commencement ceremony, what if the planner who was in charge of choosing the speaker went rogue? And they're like, this year I'm going to pick somebody different to speak. And maybe they invited an unhoused person to come and speak at the commencement. 
Imagine this man showed up wearing worn-out clothes, an unshaved face, haven't showered for days, but had a deep faith and lots of good things to share. I'm sure the board of trustees at the school would have been deeply ashamed by the commencement speaker and the way it made their school look. Because honor is given based on appearance and financial success and power, and shame is given to those who don't fit the mold. As I've thought more about it, I don't think Paul would ever have been invited to be in a, speak at a commencement ceremony at my school because he wasn't successful by any of those metrics. He had no money. He was living off of the generosity of other people. He also, he did make some money by making tents. He worked with his hands. He was a Jewish man who was living in a Roman world. He wouldn't have been invited. And here's the, the kicker, and this is the deeper part of this. I don't think Jesus would be invited <laughs> to be a speaker at my college either. Jesus was a man who was unhoused. He lived off the generosity of others and the hospitality of others. He was poor. Scripture says that he was unattractive. I'm not sure that Jesus would be given a whole lot of honor, honestly, if he attended our churches in America today. I think he might be viewed with suspicion and disdain and could even be perceived as a threat when he walked through the doors. You know, throughout history, Christians have been ashamed of the gospel. So much so that we have often altered the gospel and the scriptures and Jesus to fit our sensibilities of what is honorable or what is worthy. You know, it's a shameful thing in our society to let your enemies hurt you and, and not to pay them back with retribution and revenge. And so let's just ignore Jesus' teaching on love for our enemies and nonviolence. It's a shameful thing to reconcile with others and to forgive. So let's ignore the fact that Jesus called disciples who were at odds with each other and asked them to forgive one another. It's a shameful thing to associate with the outcasted, with those who are different than us. And so let's just ignore how Jesus repeatedly went to the margins and called those pushed there to the center of his life. It's shameful to, to just joyfully and carelessly almost to give your money away to others. And so let's turn Jesus into a capitalist who advocates for endless pursuit of wealth and power. It's shameful for a man to submit to a woman's leadership, so let's look past all the women who were leaders of the Jesus movement. It is shameful for a man to be weak and vulnerable and submissive, so let's turn Jesus into a manly man who drinks beer and watches football and gets in fights and is wild at heart. We could go on and on, pointing out the ways Christians have been ashamed of the gospel and therefore twisted and turned it to make it something that really just promotes the status quo and doesn't upset our sensibilities about what is right and what is honorable. Remember, the gospel is dynamous. It is the dynamite of God that blows up our notions of honor and shame. And you know, all this stuff's challenging, but, but really it's for the better. Our, the way we've structured our society isn't working for us, is it? <laughs> The way we live our lives isn't really working. We, we're at odds with one another. We're not, our churches are all dividing. People are, are leaving and forming their own things, and we can't get along, and, and we're feeling isolated and lonely, and we're seeing so much hardship all around us and pain. 
I believe the gospel ultimately, if we're willing to fully embrace it and embody the gospel in the way we live in community together, then I believe we can experience more peace and more wholeness and more goodness. The Spirit desires to move through us, shaping us, informing us into the likeness of Jesus. And what that does is we begin to embody the gospel more and more. We don't just believe in the gospel. You have to believe in it first. That's important, right? But we also need to embody the gospel in the way that we exist in this world. Sowing seeds of peace and goodness in our world. And I believe if the Spirit's working through us in that way, as we embody the gospel, then we can begin to reverse some of these destructive cycles that perpetuate a kingdom that doesn't value the things that God values. You know, like Paul, I'm trying my best to not allow the empire. When I say the empire, we're talking about this massive... America is an empire. It's reaches all over the world, right? It's reaches everywhere, influencing and shaping the way we live in this world. And the empire, I don't want the empire to define for me what is honorable or shameful, what is worthy or despised. On my better days, I am not ashamed of the gospel, though it is hard. Sometimes, sometimes I, I make decisions where I try to follow the way of Jesus, and I encounter problems. Has that ever happened for you? I know my brother Benjamin will be talking to me about that for a while. We follow Jesus, we can have problems, right? They come our way sometimes. Sometimes people I love have actually rejected me because of intentional decisions I've made to follow the path of Jesus. And sometimes I don't want to even bother, and I just don't want to even try because it's hard. Yet I'm trying to hold on to hope that the way of Jesus will lead to something beautiful and something good. And it's hard to see right now, right? Because we're in the midst of a hard moment. We're in the midst of a hard moment as a society. Um, even in our local church here at Embrace, we're in the midst of just a hard, heavy season, talking about hard things and difficult things. And, and it's not easy. And I'm trying to hold on to hope that it's going to lead to something beautiful and something good. And I don't always see it, but I know I have seen it. I have seen that goodness and that beauty of what the gospel can bring to us when we try and seek to embody it in the way we live our lives and open up space for the Spirit to mold us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus. You know, when much of Christianity continues to seek power and control and supremacy over others, Paul encourages us to cling to Jesus and the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.